Welcome back to Saga Briefs, where we're looking at the stories behind the sagas. I'm John. And I'm Andy. This is the second brief on the subject of Iceland's conversion to Christianity in the year 1000. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to just dive right in where we left off, if that's all right with you. Uh, sure, but we should probably explain what happened last time. <sighs> okay, quick and dirty, though. Oh, does that mean we don't get theme music while we do our review? Look, I- I'm not made of stone, John. Of course we can have some theme ah, music. Excellent. Okay, but this is going to be timed theme music, so it's going to keep us on track. You ready? Seriously? Time's a-wasting. Get going. All right. Uh, So, we began with a discussion of our sources and explained why the Islandinga book of Ari the Learned is generally considered to be the central authority for the story of the conversion. We then addressed the reasons why the pagan culture of 10th century Iceland might have been vulnerable to external religious movements, and why that also might have meant that Christianity had a tough time getting a foothold on the island. When we left off, we just covered two failed attempts to convert the island by Thorvald Farranger and Stefnir Thorgelson, and uh, Iceland is proving to be a tough nut for the, for the proselytizing King Olaf Tryggvason. But he's going to be back with a new missionary team and a new, more comprehensive plan to make Icelanders see the light, whether they want to or not. So that's not bad. I mean, we, we, I think we should start playing that when we're planning out <laughs> these episodes. Might save us a lot of time. No, thanks. Uh, so, in essence, what we're doing in this half of the story is looking behind the scenes of the most famous missionary expedition, the one led by Thongbron the Saxon. Then we'll follow the story through the all thing of the year 1000. If it is the year 1000. Right, we'll deal with that problem when we get there. Finally, we'll talk about what conversion meant for Iceland, both immediately and in the slightly longer term. All right. I'm game. I hope we can get all this done <laughs> in one uh, episode, but uh, let's get going. Part 5. Fangbrand and Olaf's Cunning Plans. So, we left off last time by talking about how unusual it was that the Icelanders were able to rebuff Olaf's early efforts to convert them. Well, I mean, that's partly because he's pretty successful elsewhere. But it's also a little surprising because Olaf doesn't have a reputation for taking rejection lightly. No, well, if anything, that's an understatement. Yeah, do you remember Earl Sigurd of the Orkneys? Yeah, uh, Helgi and Grim Njalsson helped him fend off his enemies in northern Scotland, right? That's the mm-hmm. guy. Well, shortly after Helgi and Grim left, Earl Sigurd was visited by a conversion-happy Olaf. <laughs> now, according to the Orkneyinga saga and Olaf's own saga, he ran into Earl Sigurd and invited him aboard his five ships. And when the two met, Olaf's reported to have said something like, I want you and all your subjects to be baptized. Well, it's not a surprising request for a proselytizing king. Yeah, certainly to be expected. Uh, But he followed up that request with, If you refuse, I'll have you killed on the spot, and I swear (laughs) that I'll ravage every island with fire and steel. Oh, dear. What a sweet talker. Uh, That's uh, that's one way to convert the people. And let me guess, Earl Sigurd converts. Oh, he sure does, (laughs) right on the spot. (laughs) And just to make certain that Sigurd is serious about his conversion, and that he'll enforce the conversion of the Orkneys, Olaf takes his son hostage. Yeah, it's pretty rough. Oh, it it gets worse. Uh, Sigurd's son dies not long after he's taken hostage, which doesn't sit well with Sigurd at all. In fact, he refuses to pay any homage to Olaf after the death of the son. That's a tragic story. It is. And and there are plenty of similar stories in the source literature about Olaf's responses to people who either rejected Christianity or didn't practice it as he thought they should. Right. I think we've mentioned before that Olaf's ideas about Christianity are, to put it mildly, a bit unexpected for a modern audience. (laughs) Yes. He's only king for five years, uh, but he manages to pack a whole lot into that time. Uh, And his methods were obviously persuasive, at least. 
Oh, they were. I, I know we were talking about uh, Routh the Strong mm. before we started recording <laughs> here. Um, you want to tell the lovely people about Routh's encounter with uh, Olaf? Sure. Uh, okay, so Routh was a pagan priest and a sorcerer who refused to convert to Christianity despite Olaf's most insistent invitations. And that's not surprising <laughs> for a pagan priest and sorcerer. Uh, yeah. Olaf tried to catch him, but Ralph had a ship, the Serpent, that could outrace the king's fleet. Now, see, there are a lot of these fastest ships lying around in Scandinavia. I'm a little suspicious. Now, I want to know which one is actually fastest. <laughs> right, we need to get sort of the Oslo regatta going. Uh, <laughs> but don't pull me into a digression here. Um, I'm, I'm tempted to talk about that, but Olaf hunted for Ralph and eventually found him. Yeah, and then he convinced him with a reasoned argument concerning the value of Christian conversion for his immortal soul. See, now right? that sounds good, but not exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, more like mm. Olaf ordered his men to force a horn into Ralph's mouth, then pushed a poisonous serpent down the horn and into Ralph's throat. With a hot poker, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that's another way to go. Uh, not what I would have chosen, <laughs> it's only, but it's uh, one way. And this is only one example. Yeah, one of many. Mm-hmm. The other reluctant pagans are blinded, burned with coals, and otherwise killed and mutilated. And this is the guy that, for some reason, the Icelanders are resisting. <laughs> yep. Now you can see how wise Earl Sigurd of the Orkneys was to give in without a fight. Yeah. But I wonder why the uh, Icelanders aren't terribly excited when he overthrows Earl Hawken. <laughs> well, remember, he's still developing this reputation. Yeah. And not everyone is happy about his aggressive methods. The Heimskringla tells the story of his attempt to marry the powerful Queen Sigrith, who was a pagan. Uh, before he would marry her, though, Olaf wanted her to be baptized and accept the true faith. Yeah, I love this story. Uh, yeah, so Sigrith the Haughty, as she's called, isn't impressed. Uh-huh. She tells him, I do not mean to abandon the faith I have had and my kinsmen before me. Now shall I object to your belief in the god you prefer. And if you know Olaf, you know that he wasn't too happy about this rejection. In a rage, he says, Well, why should I want to marry you, dog of a heathen? And then he slaps her in the face with his glove. Right, which he soon learns was a a very foolish thing to do. Uh, Before walking out, Sigrith stares him down and says, This may well be your death. And not to spoil a history that's over a thousand years old for anyone, but that slap is widely regarded as the action that set Olaf's downfall in motion. Yeah, it is. Uh, But uh, that's a story for another day. Yes. uh, Perhaps when we finish the family sagas, we can tackle the king sagas. Uh, Lots of great material in there. Yeah, I wouldn't say no to that. Uh, For now, we'll just say that Olaf makes the most of his five years on the throne of Norway and uh, spends his time converting as many people as he can throughout Scandinavia. In most places, things go pretty well for him. Uh, Iceland is the obvious exception. Right. Uh, So to get back to this, Olaf is really running into a wall here. Yes, but no one can say he's not persistent. Jumping back to the story of Iceland's conversion. Yeah, I knew we'd get back to it eventually. (laughs) Here we are. Uh, About a year after the missionary Stefnir is outlawed, Olaf sends another group to Iceland with a mission very much like Stefnir's or or Leif Eriksson's in Greenland. Mm. Uh, Go preach the good word and offer Olaf's friendship to the resulting converts. And the leader of this group is a hard-nosed Saxon named Thongbrand. Ah. Now, he's also pretty good with a sword, which seems to fit Olaf's methodologies perfectly. Now we're catching up to Njal's saga. Yeah, so uh, since we already talked about Thongbrand from Njal's saga's perspective, what we're going to do here is mostly look at this story as it appears in other texts. So, for example, in Ari the Learned's Islendinga book, the mission is briefly encapsulated as such. Olaf sent to this country a priest called Thangbrand, who preached Christianity to the people here and baptized all those who accepted the faith. And Hall Thorstensen had himself baptized early on, and Hjalti Skegesen, and Giza the White, and many other chieftains. But those who spoke against Christianity and rejected it were in the majority. 
And when he left, Thongbron had killed two or three men here who had libeled him. And that's it. Uh, so Ari's version is slightly shorter on narrative detail. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's five lines instead of six chapters. So either Ari is deliberately skipping a bunch of information, or the author of Njal Saga is adding a lot of oral legend. Mm. And I know which side I'm more likely to believe. Yeah, I, we can generally trust Ari, or at least we can trust him more than the saga narratives to be you know, discerning about which stories to include in a history. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that Ari's brief version ends by acknowledging the fact that Thongbrand mm-hmm. killed multiple men while in Iceland. Well, that makes sense. Mm. It's an important detail, and it also makes Thongbron's mission fit more of a pattern with the failed missions of Stefnir and Thorvald that we talked about last time. Ah, oh, yes. Thorvald and Stefnir, they're our proselytizing odd couple. I miss <laughs> them. They were fun. They're still failures, though, at least from the point of view of a conversion story. Oh, but great successes at winning our hearts. Ah, uh, Yes, but in some ways, Thongbron's story is going to be very much like theirs. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and when we do go to the longer versions of Thongbron's story... In sources like Njal Saga or in Krishni Saga, uh, we learn that he was possibly an even more unlikely candidate for evangelism than his predecessors. Thongbron has a well-documented history of violence. In King Olaf's saga, he's described as a hot-headed, unmanageable sort, known as a great killer of men. But he was also scholarly and a clever man. <laughs> yeah, I know a few hot-headed scholars. That's, that's a combination no one really appreciates anymore. I think we need more hot-headed scholars. But I don't know if it's necessarily the best choice for a sensitive mission on extolling the virtues of Christianity. Yeah, especially if it's combined with a reputation as a great killer of men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, according to Ari the Learned, Thongbron tends to react badly when he's libeled by uh, people in Iceland. Yeah, he is definitely not happy about it. And that's a theme picked up in the other texts as well. Uh, one of the offenders is Vetterlithi the poet. And Thongbrand goes well out of his way to visit Vatalithi's farm. He brings a friend, the convert Gudlif Arason, and the two of them kill Vatalithu and they find him cutting turf on his property. There's a verse written about this attack. The shield tester went south into the land, battle tools ready to thrust into poet smithy of Balder of Rosthater's bed. The manly sword-tester, out for blood, made the murderous hammer repay Vetalithi the poet on the anvil of his battle helm. I like that, on the anvil of his battle helm. I think I know where that landed. Yeah, that's one way to deal with a comment troll. <laughs> so the, the hot-headed and unmanageable part of the description is pretty accurate. Uh-huh. And Thongbrand's not even Icelandic. Right. He's a Saxon or a northern German. So he's not going to have any shred of goodwill waiting for him when he lands. No. He's got a hair-trigger temper, and he's stomping around killing poets for making fun of him. Uh-huh. <laughs> what is Olaf thinking sending this guy? Well, there's a bit of a secret history there. Oh, wait, are we doing secret histories now? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, okay, there's a version that isn't mentioned in Jarl's saga, anyway. Uh, it seems Thongbrand and King Olaf met when Olaf was still a pagan. And Kristni's saga, at least, credits Thongbrand with planting the seeds of Olaf's conversion. Ah, uh, so so from Olaf's perspective, Thongbron is a persuasive advocate for Christianity. Yeah, uh, which, I mean, if that's true, means that Thongbron is indirectly responsible for the entire North Sea Christianization under Olaf. Ah, oh, that's so cool. So uh, why wouldn't that come up in Njal Saga? <laughs> You'd think he would mention that. I, I think the Njal Saga author is really working to make the conversion itself the center of the story. 
There's, there's almost no emphasis on the political dimension of Thongbron's mission or any interest in Thongbron's biography. We don't know anything about him before he arrives on the island or after he leaves. Hmm. So I, I, I'm looking at Christie Saga right now, mm-hmm. and it, it looks like there's another reason Thongbron might have been sent over to Iceland. It, it says that even after Olaf converted to Christianity, Thongbron proved too unruly to be allowed to stay in Olaf's court. <laughs> yeah. So he was he was given the task of traveling to Iceland to spread Christianity there. Yeah. Uh, the more you read about <laughs> him, uh, the more I think Thongbron really starts to sound more and more like someone like Halfred Otterson, uh, uh, the star of Halfred's saga, the Troublesome Poet. That's true. Very cool. Uh, yeah, nice parallel. Well, and it's it's great that by 997, uh, it's clear that the job of bringing Christianity to Iceland is seen as a punishment. Right? And he's being <laughs> essentially banished from Olaf's court, and this is the job he's given. Yeah, and what a gift for Iceland. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, by this point, Olaf clearly understands that forcing an Icelandic conversion through deep theological disputation is going to be a near impossible mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, to quote another great thing, it's clobbering time. Oh, I'm ignoring you. I am so uh, ignoring you. Uh, let's assume another no. great thing. How dare you? Uh, let's Fantastic assume for fort. now um, that Olaf is actually serious about Thongbron succeeding in his job. Well, why wouldn't he be serious? Mm-hmm. I mean, Olaf seems like a very serious guy given his other behaviors. <laughs> That's a fair point. Uh, in any event, uh, Thongbron's experiences as a missionary are mixed. Um, and as we saw in Njal's saga... The sagas sometimes like to fill in the blanks by indulging in fantastical storytelling when they try to characterize him. Fantastical, you say? Yeah. I mean, he's reported to have successfully converted households and baptized several important chieftains, mm-hmm. but he also runs afoul of local magicians, has his horse sucked into the earth beneath him, suffers <laughs> widespread ridicule from Icelandic poets, and in one version of his story, he goes on an angry rampage that ends with ten men being killed. Uh, yeah. And you didn't even mention the berserk and the magic fire. <laughs> okay, so a little fantastical, maybe. Uh, but pretty much right in the wheelhouse of saga storytelling. True. Uh, so I think we'll skip most of the details of Thongbrand's work in Iceland, since we, we covered that pretty thoroughly in our seventh episode of Njal's saga. Sure, but uh, I do want to return to his narrow escape from death by magical earthquake. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like we gave that the sort of attention it deserves in the Njal conversation. Okay, but only because that section's so bizarre I can't get enough of it. <laughs> Good. So the heathen leaders of Kerlingerdal hire a sorcerer named Haden to assassinate Thongbrand at one point. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the world of the sagas, and it fascinates me. What would the Craigslist ad for Saga Iceland look like? Come on. Practitioner of the black arts needed for short-term employment. Must have own sacrificing altar, and at least two others of reference from people with Frey or Thor in their names. No finished <laughs> dreamwalkers, please. No finished dreamwalkers. You spent a little bit too much time <laughs> developing that, didn't you? I make my fun where I can. Uh, anyway, Haydn's preparation for his magic is an interesting addition to this conversion narrative. He goes off from other people up onto Arnarstak, Haith, and he conducts a great sacrifice there. Mm-hmm. There's nothing about what he's sacrificing exactly, but it's safe to assume it's probably pretty bloody. Right, and possibly there's a lot of it. There may be some splash zone. Yeah. Yeah, we don't get any more detail than that, but shortly after the sacrifice, Thongbrand is nearly killed when the ground splits open under his horse and he's forced to leap to safety. Right, and his horse and belongings are swallowed by the earth and are never seen again. As we said, Njal's saga is kind of hard on horses. Now, the saga writer doesn't say anything about what else Haven is doing up there on the heath, but we can make a few inferences from other episodes. Well, presumably he's praying, or at least repeating holy words to himself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we've seen this several times. Uh, in Eric's saga, for example, Thorhall the Hunter uh-huh. went off by himself, yep. 
also to a high and isolated place, and he mumbled while scratching himself with his eyes shut. Very good, yeah. Um, and we learned later that he was praying to Thor. Oh, and we saw it in uh, Njal's saga also when Hrop destroyed that temple we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Uh, Earl Hauken went off by himself, uh, knelt down, right, and held his hands over his eyes. And when he came back, he was able to lead his men directly to where Hrop was hiding. As we learned in that episode of Njal's saga, Hauken was praying to his personal deity, Thorgerd Holgabruthi. Right. And there are other occasions where, with very similar structures to them. Uh, so the physical isolation is often a sign of communion with magical forces, mm-hmm. and there's often a chanting element. And frequently the person has to close his or her eyes as well. Right. So in many respects, this just brings us back to what we were saying earlier. These descriptions feel like they're informed by Christian practice. Well, there's certainly a lot of similarity in these passages to the prayers of hermit Christians and monks. Well, some of these elements are present in the representation of quasi-Christianity in the sagas as well. I mean, Njal does something very similar while he waits for the Christian missionaries to arrive in Iceland. Uh, We're told he often goes off by himself and murmurs to himself. Yes. Uh, So what we're being told, I think, has less to do with an attempt to accurately represent paganism and more to do with a kind of universal attitude of prayerfulness from an Icelandic perspective. Sure, which makes sense, but it's pretty remarkable that these texts don't work harder to create some sort of division between the pagan and Christian worlds. Yeah, you know, it's almost like the Icelanders didn't feel the need to jettison their entire history to explain their conversion story. Oh, now you're being sarcastic. But <laughs> but it's still pretty remarkable. I mean, readers like Gunnar Carlson regularly note that Ari's account of the conversion is realistic and remarkably dispassionate. Mm. And that sets the mold for later accounts of the history. And that cuts both ways. Uh, it means that Ari doesn't villainize either side inherently. But it also means that he sometimes seems disinterested in establishing the actual reasons for the conversion. For me, at least, that just makes it more tempting to read the conversion as mostly a socio-political decision rather than a religious one. Yeah, it also means that we're back to not being able to make too many assumptions about paganism and its practices from these stories, mm-hmm. not even from Haydens. No, I don't think we can. Um, not at all. Uh, but regardless of how even-handed the text seem to be, we can probably say that Haydens' sorcery is meant as an example of how far and how low the pagan faction went to try to stop Thongbron's mission. Yeah, and that's true for both factions, I think. Mm. I mean, we can sum up Thongbron's work by noting that almost everyone who writes about him has trouble reconciling his behavior and preaching with any meaningful form of modern Christianity. <laughs> Although one could say that Olaf's methods were similar to Thongbron's. Right, true. Re- regardless of his unorthodox style, he does win converts. Uh, among them are some important men. Hall of Sitha is generally regarded as the first of his converts, but there are plenty of others, uh, including Gizur the White, who we've been getting to know in Njal's saga. Right. Oh, and speaking of which, remember that in our discussion of Njal Saga, we, we mentioned that Ari the Learned makes a point of recording the baptism of his own foster father, mm-hmm. Paul Thorarinson, in order to establish his personal link to the conversion. Well, I mean, you can see why he'd want to make sure that was included, right? I mean, it connects Ari's account to eyewitnesses, which is the gold standard for medieval historians. Yeah, and it's also a nice nod to his foster father, giving True. him a place in one of the most momentous events in Iceland's history. And as far as we know, this isn't a Forrest Gump situation. Ugh. A Forrest Gump reference? Sure. Really? Yeah, I think it's merited. No, it's never merited, ever. (laughs) But uh, go ahead. Uh, What I mean is that Ari isn't just inserting Hall into the story at an historically important moment. Uh, It's more like that footage of Bill Clinton as a teenager shaking hands with President Kennedy at the White House. It's a remarkable thing, but a lot of people shook hands with Kennedy that day. The significance comes retroactively from Clinton's own political future. 
Now, what does this have to do with Hall Thorarinson's baptism at age three? I just think it's a cool YouTube video. Uh, no, my, my point is that Hall's legitimately... We have a YouTube video of Hall Thorarinson's baptism? Yeah. <laughs> That's or did just you mean woodcuts. <laughs> um, no, my point is that Hall's legitimately part of an historical moment, right? Uh, but he's one of many. He's singled out because he happens at the other end of his life to be the foster father to the man who writes the history book. Mm, okay. But Ari's a cagey writer, I think. He's paying Hall a compliment, sure, but the mention of this baptism serves another purpose. It suggests that Thongbron has a gentler side to his mission mm-hmm. than just trying to outfight any pagan who crosses him. He's also baptizing children. Right. <laughs> uh, well, it provides us with a slightly different way of thinking about Thongbron. I mean, he mostly comes across as a violent man with a short fuse, so seeing this side sure, of him is important. But- but even there, that short fuse is reserved for representatives of the pagan side, who medieval Christians, frankly, would no doubt have wanted to be handled by Thangbrand's more violent methods. Mm-hmm. He doesn't use those same methods on people who want to be converted. <laughs> There's not necessarily anything wrong with his behavior here, at least from an early medieval perspective. Perhaps, but we aren't in the early Middle Ages here. Uh, and while some would agree with you, it's it's not hard to find readers who agree with Denton Fox's argument that Thangbrand is nothing more than a thug whose version of Christianity isn't really all that different from the existing pagan culture. Sure, but not everyone agrees with that either. Uh, Lars Lonroth argues that after Thongbron's visit, there's a significant psychological change in many figures in the saga toward a Christian ethos of peaceful reconciliation. See, now we're just doing dueling scholars. It's so hard to find anyone who agrees. How are we (laughs) supposed to find the truth in this history? Aha, now, see, I think you're baiting me. Uh, you, you you know that truth is subjective and subject to revision at all times. But uh, that's all we'll say about that. Uh, as for the effect of Thongbron's mission, I think the more popular opinion is that in Yal Saga and elsewhere, characters may indeed convert in name, but they don't really change their nature, mm-hmm. which is what Robert Cook says. Yeah, but how much of that is due to narrative patterns in the sagas and how much of it is due to Thongbron's incompetence as a vessel of Christian doctrine? Nah. That's a more complicated question. Well, of course, the Thongbron we have is essentially a reconstruction by writers, in however you look at it. Mm. Uh, since those writers are mostly left with his record of killing people while preaching gospel, <laughs> they're quite reasonably filling out his character as a pretty nasty customer. Well, and that's fair, yeah. Um, anyway, like his predecessors, Thongbron ends up outlawed in Iceland for killing the locals. Uh, once again, though, he's allowed to leave alive. And he does. Mm-hmm. I mean, after calling on God to burn a disbelieving berserk to death in trial by hot coals, Thongbron leaves the island in or about the year 1000. And John, I have to assume that as he left, he, he maybe sailed a victory lap around the island on his way out. <laughs> I mean, this is a, an epic visit to Iceland. Uh-huh. I, just, I imagine him standing at the front of the ship with his arms outspread, wind in his beard, praising <laughs> the good Lord who, who just made him so thoroughly awesome. Well, I... <laughs> Whether he's popping nautical wheelies on his way back to Norway or not, uh, it's clear that Iceland is in a bit of a turmoil by the time he leaves. Uh, Olaf Tryggvason is now employing a multi-pronged approach to Icelandic conversion. In addition to the repeated missionary expeditions, Olaf is also placing the island under increasing political pressure. Yes. Um, Yes, he is. (laughs) Indeed. Yeah, Yeah. according to Kristnisaga... He takes the sons of several Icelandic leading men hostage to ensure their support for conversion. Oh, that always works out so uh, well, yeah, with with Sigurd. Um, And Islendinga book says that Olaf reacted to Iceland's mockery of Thangbran by threatening to kill or mutilate every Icelander who came under his power. See, now that strikes me as a bad combination of threats. 
you you can't threaten the safety of the sons of Iceland if you've already started killing and mutilating them, can you? <laughs> well, it, it says he threatens to do it. He hasn't quite done it yet. Mm. Um, so besides sending his personal Thongbrand Rasputin to convert the locals <laughs> and then kidnapping a bunch of the young scions of Iceland, Olaf also starts trying to starve the island into compliance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some historians actually credit Olaf's increasingly aggressive economic tactics with his eventual success. Uh, he's such a charmer, isn't he? Mm-hmm. He's a peach. Uh, he forbids Norwegian ships from trading in Iceland and bans Icelandic trading ships from access to Norway's ports and markets. Uh-oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's where we start to see the tipping point power of Christianity in the region. Right. Once Olaf's power as a ruler of Norway combines with his friendships with other Christian peoples, he can exert a lot of this sort of passive power. Yeah, I mean, these are essentially economic sanctions. Right? I mean, yeah. Icelandic merchant ships relied on Norwegian shipping ports for the majority of their trade. Uh, just think about how many times we've seen Icelanders catching a lift on a ship and how many of those ships were on their way to Norway. Yes, a lot of them. Yeah, a lot of them. Uh, if Olaf enforces this ban, it could cripple Iceland's economy. Yeah, and the Icelanders see it that way too. I mean, where are they going to get all their wood if they don't get to go to... <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. There's a contingent of converted chieftains led by our friends Giza the White and Hjalti Skeggison, mm-hmm. and they happen to be visiting Norway when the situation gets ugly. Mm-hmm. They try to reach a compromise with Olaf, but the king continues to hold hostages and maintain those economic sanctions against Icelandic trading interests. Right. Now, as uh, Andrew Hamer notes, uh, all this suggests that Olaf Tryggvason did not expect the Icelandic chieftains to rush to accept Christianity on their own. Uh, and so he put them under a good deal of pressure to be converted. I think that's a pretty fair assessment of the situation. Yeah. Meanwhile, there have been some high-profile conversions in Iceland, Mm -hmm. and the confrontations between Christian and pagan contingents at the Icelandic Althing are becoming difficult to contain. In fact, that group of chieftains who meet with Olaf to try to calm his anger is only in Norway at that time because Hjalti Skeggesen has been outlawed from Iceland. Right, although in fairness, that's because Hjalti's another guy with a tendency to create problems. That outlawry is for reciting a profanity-laced poem about the goddess Freya. Yeah, well, that's true. That, this is the uh, the Odin's a dog and Freya's a bitch poem. Right, now we talked about that during the Njal Saga episode. But really, you can see why people are offended. Well, yeah, there, there's a real pattern here of some frankly outrageous things being done by the Christian contingent. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder sometimes whether we're supposed to be shocked by their behavior. Well, I think we can acknowledge that they're not behaving well, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're doing a bad job of promoting Christianity. Uh, Both sides are being pretty extreme, remember. Uh, The pagans are laying ambushes, composing those insulting Neath verses, and hiring warlocks to try to kill the missionaries. Things (laughs) have been escalating pretty quickly. Gotta love a warlock. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, by the year 1000 or so, Iceland isn't yet at the point of open conflict. But intelligent people on both sides are beginning to see a crisis that's inevitable. Right. And so as Icelanders had done with the missionaries... And as they so often do with other problems, they took their grievances to court. Part 6. The All Thing of 1000. So now we finally arrive at the year 1000's All Thing. Yeah, are we sure about that? The date, I mean? I mean, I know we've been saying the conversion happens in 1000, but there is some controversy about that date. The date? Uh, well, we're almost certain. We're kind of positive, probably. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a no. Well, it's complicated. 
<laughs> when isn't it around here? <laughs> uh, I think we're running the risk of everyone knowing that we're going to answer any question with these kind of prevarications. No, I mean, it, it's complicated. Uh, Ari the Learned states clearly and unequivocally that the conversion happened in the summer that King Olaf Tryggvason fell and 1,000 years after the birth of Christ, according to the general account, which, you know, seems pretty straightforward. Uh, and Christie's uh-huh. Saga likewise says very clearly that 1,000 years had passed since the incarnation of Christ. Okay, well, that's pretty definitive. Why, why wouldn't you just go with that? See, you're just setting me up now. Uh, yes, but uh, we're <laughs> supposed to be teaching here, so tell us, why is this complicated? Well, because we don't know what kind of calendar Ari was using. Aha. Uh-huh. See, the problem is that the Julian calendar was generally known in Iceland. It replaced a folk reckoning which counted by winters. But Ari says that it was the year 1000 according to the general count. And that could mean either the Julian calendar or the folk method. But he does peg it to the death of Olaf Tryggvason, and we know from external sources, including Wikipedia, Ooh. that that definitely happened in 1000, right? Well, if Wikipedia says it. Yeah. Uh, the problem is that the folk method would have placed the new year at around the beginning of September, four months earlier than the Julian calendar would. Uh, so that would be after the all thing, but just before the death of Olaf, which happened on September 9th. Okay. So there have been a few historians who have argued that the general count is a reference to the folk practice of counting winters starting in late summer. And they also parse out the sentence that the year 1000 refers only to Olaf's death, not to the events of the all thing, which would mean that the conversion took place in the year 999. Okay, I'm gonna, because my eyes are glazed over, I'm going to say this is kind of complicated. <laughs> well, I think the important point is that the calendar system already used is the way the year would have been rendered for his audience. And remember that Ari's kind of a stickler for accuracy whenever he can get it, so he's not likely to have used an mm-hmm. intentionally obscure dating method. Now, and many scholars have argued in the opposite direction, saying that the 999 calculation is based on modern errors, and that Ari was clearly indicating the year 1000. Which, frankly, seems more likely, or at least less convoluted. And, and, and John, <laughs> I'm starting to wish that I hadn't asked about the date at all. Oh, really? <laughs> Well, we can get into some even more complicated stuff involving a lunar cycle that Ari refers to in his lending a book. But we probably don't need to go that far. Yeah, please, let's not. We've got things to cover. So uh, (laughs) let's agree to use the year 1000 as our reference point, shall we? We've been doing that all along. Why change now? (laughs) Carry on. All right. So the source texts agree that the all thing in the year 1000 was a highly tense gathering right from the outset. Uh, The Christian and pagan factions both arrived in force and actually dressed for battle. All right, now if you've listened to our other episodes, you know that this isn't how the all thing is supposed to work. There are strict rules that govern the all thing. For one thing, fighting is supposed to be off limits. In fact, if you remember from Hrofenkel's saga, way back when we started, those attending the (laughs) gathering aren't even supposed to be fully armed. Um, there's a specific point at the end of the all thing called the Vapentaka, or the weapon taking, mm-hmm. uh, which is a sort of demarcation. After the weapon taking, violence was back on the menu, but before that, it's not supposed to be an option. <laughs> so the all thing in 1000 offers violence a la carte? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not sure I follow the menu metaphor. Uh, you follow it, but it, it's got the potential to be more of a smorgasbord, if you will. <laughs> yeah. uh, there, there isn't a lot of actual violence yet. But Ari the Learned records that it came so close to them fighting that no one could foresee which way it would go. 
And there's a lot to be worried about here. Uh, not only would a general battle at the all thing destabilize the entire power structure of the island, it would result in a lot of deaths and injuries while simultaneously delegitimizing the legal venue that's supposed to resolve those conflicts. And all that's without even factoring in the specter of Olaf's political and economic pressures. Now, fortunately, calmer heads prevail for the first few days, but Mm -hmm. the two factions then took turns declaring themselves out of law with each other um, and and formed two separate camps at Thingveller. So to fully understand the potential for disaster in being out of law with one another requires that we think in terms of Iceland's political structure. It does exactly, yes. Uh, So we've mentioned the decentralized nature of medieval Icelandic society. But it's difficult to overstate just how fundamental that structure was to late 10th century life. The people of Iceland had no king, no formal parliament, no president, no police force, no military organization whatsoever. The island functioned under a collective social agreement to adhere to a common law and to partake in the responsibilities and processes of administering that law. Which isn't to say that the law was above reproach. No, not at all. In practice, the law could be unjust, corrupt, even malleable in the hands of powerful men. Uh, And as we've seen in several sagas, lawyers were both prized and despised for their ability to manipulate the law to their own ends. Yeah, Njal's a great example of that. Mm -hmm. It it occurs to me, though, that we're not doing much to rehabilitate the image of lawyers here. I mean, (laughs) do you need to unethically manipulate the system to destroy a rival? Try your local lawyer. (laughs) This podcast brought to you by the Harvard School of Law. (laughs) <laughs> or the uh, the Icelandic school of law. But uh, well, it, it's understandable, given these circumstances, that uh, some men might prefer to use more traditional methods of conflict resolution. Without which we wouldn't have our body count and best bloodshed categories, so let's not sneer. Yeah, right. So it all works out in the end. Well, okay, so the point here is that although the law might be flawed and imperfect, it remained, in its ideal form, the basis and blueprint for collective self-administration. So the two factions declaring themselves out of law with each other was more than a kind of medieval passive resistance. It was potentially a prelude to all-out war, and in the absence of a central authority behind the law, it threatened the stability of every life on the island. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're staring at civil war right there. It's yeah. dangerous stuff. And the problem for both sides, but particularly for the newly converted Christians, was that the law courts and formal gatherings were consecrated by pagan priests. Mm-hmm. Now, even if Jenny Jockins is right about the casual nature of pagan religious practice on the island, and that's still a debatable uh, observation, the, the laws were themselves a kind of cultural articulation of the sacred. Yeah, I really think it might not be going too far to say that the law stood in for a sort of tribal religion for Iceland in the 10th century, uh, or at least served as a basis for proto-national identity. Uh, at least to the degree that it was the most recognizable feature of Iceland's commitment to decentralized self-governance, it was as important and perhaps more important to Icelandic authority than a pagan or Christian faith. Yeah, and that's an interesting idea. And, and to bring it back around to our subject, what these texts are telling us is that religious affiliation was part and parcel of the Icelandic social compact. Yes, it is. Uh, and it's that part part that I'm talking about. Part part? Whatever, whatever you you uh, say, say, John, John. <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh, I do, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Smart. Uh, religion was one of the supports of the law that defined Icelandicness. It was a part, but it wasn't the whole or even the chief identifier. So it's not as central to how Icelanders think of their connection to one another. But it turns out that when you remove it, 
the assumption of universal participation in the social rule of law begins to wobble. Mm. Uh, and that is at the center of Icelandic identity. Once you lose the law, you lose Iceland. Oh, so so there's a, a domino effect at work in all of that. Why mm. didn't you just say that? Well, because I was busy being analytical. Yeah, you were busy, all right. Anyway... Uh, what it comes down to is that pagans and Christians couldn't trust that their religious estrangement wouldn't lead to legal judgments being ignored or undermined. Yeah, so this is another manifestation of the same logic we saw in uh, Rollo's story and elsewhere. Right. Both sides want to achieve something, often peace, but in this case, a working legal system. And that has to rely in part on mutually respected oaths. And since the value of an oath is frequently thought of as consisting in the value the oath maker places in his or her word, and of course whatever that oath is sworn to, a mutually respected religious context for the swearing of the oath was essentially indispensable. Especially in a situation where two sides have been at war or have a history of animosity, and might not trust in the other side as an inherently honorable person. Like Gus, for example. Uh, how so? What do you mean? Well, you're a shifty fellow, and you've got a reputation for going against your word. See, now you're slandering me, and that cuts deep. <laughs> uh, and more important, John, you, you hurt my feelings. <laughs> I, I don't think I can trust your oaths anymore. Yeah, see? See how quickly that happens? Yeah. Now imagine if we were from polar opposite faith traditions. Uh, I'd be killing your family before uh. you know it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we see those kind of conflicts founded on mistrust all over the place today. Just think about it. Mm. I'll give you a pause. Uh, but... <laughs> But now is not the time to talk about current events and politics. In go. the Middle Ages, the Vikings found themselves in a position where they had to convert to Christianity and undergo baptism so that their oaths could be taken seriously by other European Christians who they wanted to trade and do business with. Mm -hmm. Only at that point could they make a truce or a lasting peace that their enemies would trust. Exactly. Which we talked about in our saga brief on Rollo the Viking. Right. Of course, whether the Vikings actually took the truces and oaths seriously was an entirely different matter. But that's a different problem that can be dealt with post-baptism. Sure, and, and we got to remember that in the Middle Ages, the, the Catholic religion is really one more of performance than, than belief, uh, right. at least for the average person. Right, and puts a premium on baptism, right? The actual act of Absolutely. baptism. So when yeah. you, once you've done that, you've kind of won the battle. Yeah. Um, now, that's the heart of the problem, right? So without mutual trust and oath-making, there's no faith in the law and no faith in one's neighbor's commitment to the customs of self-governance under the rule of law. And with the basis for collective self-governance teetering, that's it. I mean, the entire Icelandic political experiment is balanced at a knife's point. Or set to knock down all those dominoes or whatever, right? Whatever. Metaphor of choice. Yeah. Ultimately, though, this game of political brinksmanship collapses when a leader of the Christian faction named Hall of Sida, who was uh, Thangbrand's first convert, mm -hmm. refuses his friend's call to create a new Christian-only code of laws. Instead, he publicly submitted himself to the wisdom of the sitting law speaker, Thorgeir Thorkelson, mm -hmm. who's technically neutral, but really, he's sort of a moderate in the pagan faction. Right. Now, Thorgeir's an interesting guy. Yeah, he is. He's mentioned in Njal's saga, and we're going to be seeing more of him in uh, Ljosvetninga saga. Mm -hmm. He's been law speaker for 15 years at the time of this all thing in 1000, and he's widely recognized as the go-to authority on the law. Right. Now, he is a pagan, even though he's got Christian relatives. Uh, but more importantly, he's seen as someone whose primary partiality is to the law, not to a religion or clan group. 
Yeah. The dynamics here are kind of interesting, though. Mm-hmm. Hall of Seetha scores some points for being willing to trust to Thorgir's fair-mindedness, but it's hard to resist suspecting that Hall already knows that Thorgir is favorably disposed to the Christian side of the argument. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, the sources don't really mention whether there might be any shenanigans afoot. They concern themselves with the details of Thorgir's careful deliberation over what decision to make. And, uh, according to Njal Saga, Thorgir spent a day and a night in uninterrupted meditation under a skin blanket. <laughs> ah, yes, the old blanket fort. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we talked about that in the Njal Saga conversion episode. Right, now I still haven't found a serious explanation for why he needs to be covered by a skin blanket for his deliberations. Uh, the only thing that leaps out to me is that it superficially resembles some of the trances that Finnish spellworkers go into. Hmm. Uh, they often have to be physically isolated and go into a kind of fugue state while their spirit selves get to work. That's kind of interesting. And when you make that connection, it, it, it puts what's happening into a context that fits with saga writing more generally. Uh, think of uh, like a Bolvar Bjarki. Oh, yeah. Uh, but you probably need to explain. Uh, you're talking I about Hrolf Saga Kraka. That's right. Uh, the Saga of Hrolf Ladderlegs. Mm. <laughs> Balthamar Bjarki is a warrior who channels a spirit bear during times of need. Uh, he goes into a kind of trance, and this bear shows up and starts kicking butt on his behalf. It's You might say it's his That's... Patronus. <laughs> there you go. You might say that. <laughs> I wouldn't say that, but you might. One might. Uh, it's a, it's such a great saga. It's such fun. Oh, it is. I love it. It's going to be a while before we get to it since it's one of the fantastical legendary sagas, the mm-hmm. Fornolder Sager. Um, it's interesting for this conversation, though, because both of our trances require that he be isolated and undisturbed. Right. Now, I don't think we can definitively say that Thorgir's blanket fort is necessary because he's off on a spirit journey. But it's probably fair to say that it, it would evoke a sense of spiritual exploration. Maybe. And and that's interesting all by itself, since this is another example of these motifs making the leap from pagan to Christian with minimal change. Right. Um, and that's a, that's a literary observation, but it seems to reflect a cultural continuity. Yes. And as we're going to talk about next, the conversion is partly remarkable for how little actually seems to change in the wake of Thorger's decision. Yeah, I think we can go that far, at least. Uh, well, since this episode is about the conversion of Iceland, I hope Thorger's decision won't come as a shock to anyone. Uh <laughs> When he emerges from his blanket fort, he says, It seems advisable to me not to let those who oppose each other with greatest venom prevail. So let us arbitrate between them, so that each side has its own way in something. But we shall all have the same law and the same religion, because it will prove true that if we tear apart the law, then we tear apart the peace. Ah, that echoes uh, Njal's words, With Mm. the law the land shall rise. Right, right. Yeah, the version that you're given of the speech is from Christie's Saga, mm-hmm. but uh, the variations from one version to another are pretty minor. The upshot remains the same in all. For Thorgair, this is a legal dispute as much as a religious one. More so, I think. Um, yeah. he, he then proclaims that everyone should be baptized, but that the old laws should stand as regards the exposure of children, the eating of horse flesh, and the right to sacrifice to the pagan gods in private. Yeah, the emphasis on legal rights is great. It essentially amounts to a declaration of religious tolerance. Mm-hmm. Everyone had to be baptized so that the law would be considered binding upon them, but they're still allowed to practice their own faith, whatever that might be or might not be. Right. Now, as we've said, balancing all this is the genius of Thorger Lawspeaker's decision. But still, uh, exposing children, eating horse flesh, sacrificing to the pagan gods, those are pretty significant issues. Yeah, well, you know, change is a gradual thing in any culture, John. Well, I mean, honestly, the the horse meat thing is fine. 
Uh, every culture makes its own decisions about what to eat and what is taboo. And sacrifice to the pagan gods, uh, religious toleration is a fine thing. Yeah. But the exposing children rule is a problem. Uh, for those who don't know, this is the practice of leaving an infant to die from exposure to the elements. Well, you know, we, true, but we've talked about that one before. The sagas at least seem to suggest that child exposure wasn't exactly acceptable and that people were sometimes judged quite harshly for it. Right. Now, that doesn't mean that it never happened. But when it did, it was usually part of that difficult calculus of survival that we talked about in subsistence-level societies. Absolutely. A sickly or impaired child might be abandoned to conserve resources for other children. Absolutely. And, and medieval Iceland wouldn't be the only culture to ever have done that. And it wouldn't right. only be in the Middle Ages. You can find Absolutely a right. number of cultures around the world today that still do that kind of thing. Anyway, in any case, it wouldn't be long before this all would be revisited. Over the next few decades, new pronouncements would be made and various practices like dueling, the use of pagan magics, blood sacrifice, and child exposure would all be outlawed. Right, And that doesn't mean that the practices stopped right away. Uh, but that's getting no. us into a longer story than we're telling right now. Yeah, so let's go back to Thorgeir, having just made this announcement to the Gathered Assembly. What's going on there? Okay, so it's interesting that the sources are all quite certain that Thorgeir's decision was unexpected by those present. Uh, of course, we have to remind ourselves that these sources date from a later and more completely Christian Iceland, so that only the very old would remember even meeting an eyewitness to the events of the day. And it makes a better story if Thorger's announcement is a shocking surprise. Of course. Now, while these versions focus on the Solomon-like wisdom of Thorger, mm. the political and economic realities of the situation were undoubtedly pressing issues as well. Oh, I definitely think so. Uh, and it's not all that subtle. I mean, if we pay attention to the story's details, you know, uh, one way that the pressure is acknowledged is that Ari makes clear that the Christian faction was led by those chieftains who had just been in the court of King Olaf earlier that year and yeah. had seen his anger up close and personal. Yeah, so they're able to report back all those frothing rages Olaf was in and mm -hmm. how he was threatening to kill and mutilate every Icelander he got his hands on. Yep. Yeah, and that is a persuasive theological argument. Well, it definitely <laughs> can be. Uh, and as we said earlier, we do see this side of Olaf's conversion efforts elsewhere. Um, now, remember the bit of Halford's saga where he sent to go blind a man for refusing Olaf's order to convert? That's right, yes. Yeah, Olaf was up to his old tricks even back then. <laughs> <laughs> and Halfred himself was so merciful that he could only take one of the guy's eyes. Right. Ah, yes. What a, what a mensch. <laughs> Christianity seems to mean something a bit different for Olaf than it does for, say, uh, Francis of Azizi. <laughs> well, I mean, remember, he was taught about Christianity by Thongbrand. <laughs> that kind of thing leaves a mark on a guy. <laughs> Literally. Uh, okay, so Thorgeir Lawspeaker announces that the entire island would be baptized and believe in one god, and he makes it pretty clear that this is a socio-political decision, not a theological one. Yeah, that's pretty much how it goes. Uh, there's a fair amount we can say about the details. Uh, for example, it's, it's possible that Ari deliberately exaggerated the central importance of King Olaf's efforts, or the place of people like Gizur the White in the conversion story, uh, which would mean that the earlier missionaries, especially Thorvald and his bishop Frithric, might have done a better job than the records show. Well, Ari ignores them completely, except mm -hmm. for a, a brief reference to Friedrich. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, Ari has strong connections to Gizer's family, and Gizer and King Olaf were actually related. That's right. Weren't they like uh, second or third cousins or something like that? Yeah, second cousins, I think. Uh, huh. And Ari himself was raised for a time in the household of Gizer the White's grandson. So Ari's emphasis on King Olaf might be a way of puffing up the family history of his friends and patrons. Yeah, that covers it, yeah. How unusual for a, uh, for a, a story writer or a saga writer to do something like uh -huh. that. 
but uh, regardless of how and why the seeds are planted, it's pretty universally agreed that the conversion happened as we've told it here, with Thorgeir negotiating mm-hmm. a solution for the entire island. Yep. Uh, and there's a little story here that I really like. Uh, Ari doesn't say much about enforcement of the decision, but later writers did add a claim that there were mass baptisms before the end of the all thing. Well, I mean, that makes sense. Then, as now, baptism was widely accepted as the symbolic act by which a person signaled willingness to join the church. Uh, yeah, but in Hauksbok, it's said that the lines formed at the hot springs near the all thing uh. because no one wanted to be baptized in the cold water of Lake Thingvalvatn nearby. I love that. First of all, I love that because we finally get references to hot springs. I I was talking to my wife recently and she was asking, why don't they mention some of the hot springs more often in the sagas? Mm -hmm. You'd think that they would come up. They spend a lot of time lounging in them apparently. Yeah, yeah, but they don't actually mention it all that often. Anyway, um, so they they are willing to join the church and be baptized, but Mm -hmm. there's no reason to be uncomfortable about this, right? Yeah, let's not go overboard here. Uh, But whether the mass baptisms happened right away or not, it seems that Thorger's pronouncement goes down pretty well yeah that's an important question actually everyone just accepts his decision that's pretty remarkable well that's what we're going to talk about next Ooh. part seven conversion and consequences okay uh now that we've gotten the title out of the way i can answer your question yes the decision to convert was widely accepted uh, but what's <laughs> okay. trickier to answer is what that actually meant to those living in Iceland in, for example, A.D. 1001. Uh, by the Julian calendar or the general method? <laughs> uh, no, I know. I was introducing the topic through Socratic questioning. Ah, so. well done then. Uh, yeah, that's how I work. Uh, the, the truth is that our available sources make this a difficult question to answer. The problem is that the sources... They just don't really want to talk about things from the perspectives that we're trying to use. Mm -hmm. Christian writers of the 12th century and later preferred to see the conversion as a historical and theological inevitability. Right. So if we want to talk about the consequences of a socio-political religious shift, which is how we've been talking about it, we're going to have to start making some guesses. Or some informed guesses. Well, we can only hope. Uh, So right away, Iceland has the opportunity to rethink its decision. Because later, in the same summer of 1000, King Olaf Tryggvason was killed at the naval battle of Svolder. Timing. See, it's all about timing. Mm-hmm. The story of the battle of Svolder is really worth going into in some detail and how it kind of came about. It's on our list of subjects to return to in other saga briefs. For one thing, popular legend is that Olaf isn't actually killed in the battle. Yeah. Uh, interesting. He, he supposedly jumped ship to avoid capture and was never seen again. Yes, and legends abound that he didn't, in fact, drown, mm-hmm. that he escaped and lived on, right. like some kind of Arthur in uh, in Avalon. Right. But uh, again, that's a story for another time. Mm-hmm. For our purposes, and as far as history is concerned, Olaf died at Svolder. Yeah. Which means, as you said, that the Icelanders are left with something of, a, of an anticlimax to their showdown with Norway <laughs> over Christianity. Yep. Uh, Olaf's death removes, the really, the, the immediate threat to Iceland as a pagan state. And it creates something of a political and religious vacuum. Right? Suddenly there's time for everyone to take a deep breath and reassess the decision to convert. And yet, by all accounts, no such reconsideration ever took place, at least not on the national stage. Yeah. Now, it's entirely possible that a backsliding population would be glossed over by later Christian writers. Although elsewhere, uh, in England, for example, 
When a newly christened population starts backsliding, it gets highlighted in moralizing literature. True, and it's hard to reconcile the idea of an undocumented pagan revival with accounts of of other regions that did revert to their pagan identity, Mm -hmm. including Norway, as a matter of fact. Well, that's true. Uh, The enemies who attacked and killed Olaf Tryggvason weren't exactly great friends of the church. No. His immediate successor was Sven Forkbeard, who was nominally a Christian, but never actually used his baptized name of Otto. Yes, right. And and he was working with uh, Sigrid the Haughty, if mm, I remember correctly. That's right, I do remember. Interesting. Uh-huh. Yes. This is uh, the same Sven who uh, briefly ruled England for one winter in uh, in 1013, right? That's right. Um, even in a place as fond of nicknames and beards as 11th century Scandinavia, there aren't two kings running around with the name Sven Forkbeard. So it's definitely the same guy. Right. Now, Sven's successor is Olaf Haraldsson, who's later called St. Olaf for his work in promoting Christianity. And a lot of people confuse the two Olafs and think the other one is St. Olaf. This is St. Olaf. Uh Uh, But his success is as uneven as Tryggvason's. Uh, Yeah, we said earlier that Ari might have an agenda in promoting Olaf Tryggvason. Mm -hmm. And one of the giveaways is that he invariably calls the second Olaf, Olaf the Stout. And ignores his sainthood altogether. Poor Olaf. He spends a lifetime earning yeah. a name like Saint Olaf, and the greatest historian of the era just makes fun of his pop belly. <laughs> well, Ari's being a little uncharitable, but mm. his point of view is informed by an Icelandic worldview. Olaf Tryggvason was the more important of the two as far as Iceland's story goes. Well, that's probably true, although again, Ari's the one telling that story, so he decides who's important. Uh, yes. The upshot is that under Sven and his successors, Norway's Christianity was limited to certain regions, with large parts of the population reverting to their pagan faith. Almost as if they were forced to convert. Mm, almost like. Mm-hmm. And yet Iceland didn't revert, mm-hmm. or at least not according to the surviving records, they didn't. Right, and I think we can cautiously take that as gospel, so to speak. Uh, huh. Burial evidence from the period bears it out, for example. Uh, only one known burial site dated after 1000 shows any sign of pagan burial practices. Uh, and after all, it's not like the sagas shy away from mentioning individual figures who resisted that sweeping conversion by fiat of 1000. Yeah, think of Eric the Red or Thorhall the Hunter in Eric's saga. Right, right, right. Uh, when you sift through the evidence, it, it does seem like having agreed to a resolution, Icelanders uh, intended to keep it. And that quotes from Jenny Jockins, but pretty much everyone agrees with that assessment. Yeah, so there was a commitment to the new religion, if only because no one wanted to revisit the question. Are you buying this, John? Well, I, briefly, yes. But more completely and more honestly, no. <laughs> so no is what you're saying. Well, I kind of want to go with both yes and no here. And okay. I realize it's a typical lit major answer. Uh, the problem is that I don't want to remove the religious element from the discussion, but I still think that there are much bigger and broader issues at work. Okay, such as? Well, I mean, many readers, and Jockins is included in this, tend to understand Iceland's apparent commitment to the conversion in religious terms, or okay. else as a function of inertia. Or both. I mean, both right. would fit pretty well with the religious apathy that we talked about earlier. It does, actually. And I'm fine with giving both of those factors a seat at the table. But okay. I see it primarily as a consequence of the legal compact that undergirded Icelandic society. Ah, uh, so yeah, I see where you're going with this. Now, a decision made at the all thing by the law speaker with the consent of both parties had much the same weight as an arbitrated settlement in a private feud. That's right. Violations of the settlement would disrupt the law and weaken its authority in future resolutions on the matter. In a case such as this, where every gothi on the island is on one side or the other of the case, a feud outside the law would be utterly disastrous. 
Interesting. And that doesn't necessarily mean that there was no preference for one religion or another, but there's a social pressure created by legal accord that's not easily ignored or broken here. More or less, yeah. I kind of like that. All right. I'm going to buy that for a dollar. So <laughs> we're robocopping uh, now. Yeah. Ultimately, I remember back in, uh, I don't know if it was middle school or whenever that was, but people running around saying that mm-hmm. kind of became part of my vernacular anyway. So, so ultimately we're back to arguing that law was close to being the state religion, right? Yeah, sort of. Uh, the initial conversion took place because of a bunch of factors. Uh, but I think it's a mistake to lose sight of the central role of the law throughout the process. Well, as we said, Iceland comes under tremendous pressure from Norway to convert. Mm-hmm. But the early missionaries, with their bad behavior and strange interpretations of their faith, tended to strengthen rather than overcome resistance to the Christian church, mm. even when those missionary efforts were backed by the authority and might of Norwegian throne. Sure. Uh, but even when missionaries act inappropriately or violently, the Icelandic commitment to arbitration and legal settlement kicks in. Right? All those outlawings of the missionaries those are about more than just punishing a transgressor. They provide a means of resistance that seeks and I think ultimately manages to avoid direct confrontation with Olaf Tryggvason. Ah, uh, this is a classic misdirection. Uh-huh. Oh, no, we, we, we don't have a problem with Christianity. We just don't <laughs> like the, the axe-choppy murderers you keep sending us. Send another <laughs> one. It's kind of brilliant if it's deliberate. I think it is. Um, and in fact, it's kind of hard to shake the sense that even the later Christian accounts of the years leading up to the conversion – they get a little nostalgic and prideful about the forbearance and the legal sophistication of the pagan Icelanders. In one text after another, we find pagan Icelanders who behave with great restraint, exiling these unruly and bloodthirsty men like Thongbrand or Stefnir or Thorvald Farranger, rather than pursuing feud vengeance against them. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to think of it this way. It fits with the general Icelandic bent toward resolution through arbitration with an effort to appease both sides of a conflict. Yes. Especially when the the consequences of violence can be foreseen and are undesirable. Yeah. And although it still serves to complement the pagan faction, ultimately what it does is to approve the Icelandic way of doing things. Yes. And that's a cultural feature that's more important than the religious identity of the population. I I, I like that. Yeah, but we have to remember the reasons for that restraint. Mm-hmm. Even before the economic sanctions, no one's looking to make Olaf Tryggvason angry. <laughs> remember, this is the guy who sends hitmen to kill or blind people who don't convert on his timetable. That's absolutely true. Uh, Olaf is not a king you want as an enemy. Uh, but there's even more to be considered. Uh, it seems to me that the subtext of his lending a book suggests the futility of taking up arms against men allied not only with Olaf Tryggvason, but with Christ and the saints. That's right, yes. There's a famous bit of dialogue that seems to make this explicit. Now, we actually used the same exchange way back in episode one to explain the conversion, but uh, that's been a while, so I think we could reproduce it here. Okay, yeah, yeah. So there's a pagan woman named Steinun, and she's supposed to have confronted the missionary Thongbrand by saying, Have you heard that Thor challenged Christ to a duel, and Christ did not dare to fight with him? Right, and Thongbrand supposedly responded, what I have heard is that Thor would be mere dust and ashes if God didn't want him to live. Yeah, I like that part. Uh, it encapsulates yeah. exactly how both sides in the argument think of their gods. But this is just what I mean. Ari the Learned and his successors are writing from a perspective that weights Olaf's side of the argument with the power of the church. Uh-huh. And that's a connection that I think doesn't seem to be made by people at the time. Uh, there's some bias and some hindsight working together there. 
Oh, yeah, I, I like that. I have to say, though, Thongbron's got some strange ideas about how Christ works. <laughs> I don't know. It sounds pretty Old Testament to me. Yeah. Uh, and after all, we are talking about the guy who introduced Olaf to Christianity. The guy Olaf learned his particular style of eye-gouging, snake-swallowing Christianity from. That's right, yes. Well, Thongbron's unique take on Christology aside, <laughs> uh, we're talking about the main reason for Iceland's decision to move forward as a nominally Christian people. Mm-hmm. Are we comfortable with saying that the political and cultural advantages of a Christian identity for 11th century Iceland are as important as the legal inertia of the decision itself? Uh, well, we can't rule it out. Okay. Um, the economic and military pressure from Norway under Olaf Tryggvason, it couldn't have been quickly forgotten. Uh, and the threat of violence and further isolation, that has to have been in the mind of Thorger Lawspeaker when he sat under his blanket fort at the Althing in 1000. Uh, true enough. And while Iceland still relied primarily on Norway for its international commerce in the decades after the conversion, it can't have escaped everyone's attention that pagan trading partners were getting harder and harder to find during the era's push mm. to convert the north. Yeah, yeah. Uh, any hope of building new connections, especially connections free of Norwegian dominance, those are only going to be helped by a Christian national identity. Yeah, which is pretty ironic. In order to escape Norwegian interference, Iceland had to embrace its new Christian identity. Mm. And that identity happened in large part because of Norwegian interference. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that about covers it. Yeah. But on the plus side, Iceland was able to start importing Norwegian companions again, which is great. <laughs> it's hard to have a good saga battle without one or two of those guys around to kill off. Ah, poor red shirt wearing buggers. Yeah. Uh, but there are a lot of other goods that Icelanders needed to import. Uh, real ones, you know, not stuff we made up. Uh, yes. And as they became culturally more aligned with continental Europe, that trading culture was poised to expand. Yes, in the long term, that's going to have tremendous consequences for the island. The literature, the culture, even the diet of Icelanders would eventually change through these networks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Not to mention the introduction of, a, of an alphabet and writing. Right. Uh, but that's all long term. What's happening right away? Um, well... Culturally speaking, it's it's not clear that a great deal changed in Iceland in the years and decades immediately following the conversion. Uh, as we said, initially a number of pagan practices were still overtly or at least tacitly permitted. And for the most part, religious practice seems to have remained largely a matter of personal preference for at least another two generations. Yeah, we've seen some examples of the slow introduction of pro-Christian or anti-pagan laws in, in some of the sagas we've covered already. Mm-hmm. Uh, think of the outlawing of dueling or the holmgang that we saw in the uh, the saga of Gunlog Serpentong. Oh, right. That happened in around 1006. Mm-hmm. And, and it wasn't explicitly tied to Christianity, but it was definitely part of a cultural shift away from the old ways of doing things. Uh, and an even more direct example is Gretter's saga. Um, uh, if you remember, after Thorbjorn Hook and his foster mother use witchcraft to injure Gretter as Munderson, the use of pagan magics is outlawed in Iceland. Uh, sure, though it, it's always tricky sorting out how to link episodes like that to actual historical events. Whoa, are you suggesting that magically malevolent driftwood is historically implausible? Not exactly, but yes. <laughs> uh, the point is that if we sift through the sagas we end up with a general sense of movement toward accepting Christianity as a guiding force in Icelandic law after the conversion. It's slow, but it's happening. Yes, eventually it's a shaping force. But again, that's a long time coming. Well, okay, so if we're talking about the immediate aftermath, not much changed at all. Most of the local chieftains of Iceland claimed priest status in the new religion, mostly on the basis that they've been sort of priests in the old faith. Can you do that? Just... Call being priest? I suppose so. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) And anyway, they had to do something. 
I mean, the whole idea of an official institutional Christian church on the island it took a while to get off the ground. Well, part of the problem is that the Norwegians remained very interested in this Iceland project. Iceland didn't produce its own bishop until 1056, when the first native bishop establishes a see at Skarholt. Mm-hmm. Uh, before that, the bishops and monks and priests are regular visitors to the island, but they mostly come on Norwegian ships and mostly at the urging of Norwegian kings. Yeah, it does look and feel like the Norwegian kings, including St. Olaf the Stout, uh, were working under the assumption that the acceptance of Christianity signaled a new openness to Norwegian influence in Iceland. Yeah, well, there's a lot of precedent for things working that way in other parts of Europe as well. Yeah, but not here. Uh, I like Gunnar Carlsen's way of putting it. Christ was let in, but the king was not. Ah, and, and even how much Christ got in in those first years is, is a hard question to answer. Yeah. yeah. Eleven bishops over the course of 50 years supposedly worked <laughs> to Christianize the island. Eleven. That's a lot of bishops. Yeah. Yeah, over 50 years. And maybe it's an exaggeration. Uh, six of them are named and probably actually existed, but the other five are are a little sketchy. Supposedly, three of them are, are, are Armenian. Sure. When, when you think 11th century Iceland, you think Armenian bishops. Uh, I do. <laughs> well, however many there are, uh, they're operating without any of the trappings of power that would normally accompany an Episcopal dignity. Uh, there's lumber donated by St. Olaf for a single church. But for the most part, the early Christians are operating within the same subsistence-level problems that the rest of Iceland was used to. It's no wonder they weren't inclined to stay. What? But they had enough wood for a church. What more do they want? <laughs> How about a house? Uh, and, you know, even so, I mean, the the even though the church is clearly limping along in the early years, uh, the leading men of Iceland are pretty quick to see the opportunities that this new faith offers. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Gizer the White is especially quick to see that the future will belong to those who control the church. Yes. Uh, as Jenny Jawkins points out, in 1000, Gizur has no male children. By 1006, he's married a young third wife and is building a family that includes sons. Uh-huh. I see where that's going. Of course. And Gizur's oldest son, Islif, is then sent to German Saxony to be trained and ordained as a priest. Mm-hmm. And much later, in 1056, Islif becomes the first native bishop of Iceland. He's the one who establishes the sea at Skalholt. And we should say that there are unmistakable signs that Icelanders intend to conduct their Christian church in their own way. Mm-hmm. When Isleif Gizurarsson uh, dies in 1080, his successor as bishop is his son by his second <laughs> wife, Gizur Isleifsson. Oh. You see how that's going? <laughs> yes. Uh, clearly not all aspects of church tradition were equally embraced in the Icelandic aspect. Yeah. Uh, that must have been an awkward conversation, uh, so I get to be bishop, and I can tell everyone what they have to do to be Christian? This sounds great. Sort of, yes, but you need to take a vow of celibacy, of course. Celibacy? What's the point of that? Well, you're you're meant to be devoting your life to Christ and the church. Oh, uh, no, 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 no. How can I leave the bishopric to my sons if you expect me not to have sex with my multiple wives? <laughs> and scene. <laughs> it does seem a little ridiculous looked at from a modern view. Yeah, it is, but it's important to see that this is really just a continuation of the island's pre-existing political logic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what I find really fascinating in my research on kind of uh, betrothal customs yep. is uh, reading the letters from the bishops uh, exchanging with, uh, with uh, the Pope and things like that, <laughs> trying to figure out just how to handle these Icelanders. Just tearing uh, these their Icelanders. hair out over this. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's like, well, they gotta, they want to be married all the time, mm-hmm. and they keep having children, and they don't do these. things. They're very yeah. casual about who they have children with. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it is a real problem. So uh, anyway, Christianity was taken in the Icelandic stride, and right. while it was busy changing the course of Icelandic history, Iceland was busy doing its best to make the church work the way they expected it to. Absolutely, um, Islif and Gizr's family, the uh, the Haukdolar would go on to treat control of the church yeah, more or less the way other families treated a valuable chieftaincy or a godorth, passing it around within the clan group for generations and dominating yes. the upper echelons of the clergy. And that's a great comparison that, that the, the these offices are treated like the godorth, which mm-hmm. in many ways is it was originally a religious office. Right. Mm. But uh, that probably shouldn't surprise us. It, it seems like a logical progression from the way they adopted Christianity at the all thing. Uh-huh. Now, I don't know of any other place where Christianity was adopted through legal counsel. <laughs> and certainly the slow rollout of Christian practice mingled with the initial toleration of pagan holdouts. It's unusual historically and and has to have affected how the religion intersected with the existing culture of the island. Oh, I mean, there's no question that Iceland's path to Christianity is different than that of any other European people. Yeah. Uh, after all, even if the decision to convert was relatively abrupt, Christian identity and perhaps for some, personal experience of the religion, came about much more gradually. And and even then, only after a participatory government chose to accept it for reasons that were widely seen as having more to do with the law than with the faith, at least if, if our argument is correct. Yeah, so ultimately, even if the conversion and the resulting arrival of churchmen and monasteries from the continent accelerated cultural cross-pollination— the process is not going to be straightforward. Well, and in any case, knowing for certain which changes in the culture happened because of the conversion and which happened you know, in spite of it or for other cultural or historical reasons, that can be really difficult to disentangle. I mean, after all, Iceland wasn't ever an isolated culture in the Viking Age, and Christianity wasn't an unknown quantity to such a well-traveled people. And so we're right back where we started with mm. the difficulty of interpreting the very meager evidence. Well, but older and wiser for the journey, I hope. Uh, we're all older, that's for sure. <laughs> well, then let's uh, let's wrap up with something definitive. <laughs> Can we? Are we capable right, of that? Well, we'll see. Uh, well, one significant acceleration that we can tie to the conversion with reasonable certainty, and you suggested it earlier, is the introduction uh-huh. of the Roman alphabet. And yes. with that, manuscript culture into Iceland. Ah, sure. See, we've been so focused on the Norway-Iceland struggles that we've barely discussed that part of things, which mm-hmm. is a really fascinating part. Uh, a part part, as you like to say. <laughs> uh, by the 13th century, Iceland was recognized across Europe for the quality and quantity of its writers. In addition to producing poetry, saints' lives, and the prose sagas, Ari the Learned and those who came after him built a reputation as the historians of the North. Yeah, uh, and as a matter of fact... The Icelanders became more effective chroniclers of Norwegian medieval history than the Norwegians did themselves. Yes. And ultimately, that means that Icelanders play a really large role in determining the first pass of history's judgment on the Norse Viking world. And see, that's why I love thinking about all this stuff. But now I want to go spend another hour or so talking about that. Can we do that? I, well, I'm willing, but at time? some point we should probably turn the microphones off. I mean, this is, <laughs> we're testing people's patience here. Yes, fair enough. Uh, uh, the, the, the writing culture and scriptoria of Iceland are almost certainly a saga brief in their own right. And, and one just, day, maybe 20 years going. from now. You just keep writing checks <laughs> that we can't cash. Yeah. Uh, all right. So you and I can go argue about manuscript culture for a while, but uh, that's going to do it for this two-part brief on the conversion of Iceland. Uh, we'll be back soon with the next episode in our never-ending story of Njal's saga. 
And in the meantime, uh, please let us know what you thought of all this. Yes, and let us know what you'd like to hear about in future Saga Briefs. We've got a few more that we're slowly working on. Painfully slowly. Yes, but we still want to know what you'd like to hear more about. You can reach us at our Facebook page, Saga Thing Podcast, or through Twitter at Saga Thing Pod, or even by email at Saga Thing Podcast at gmail.com. Or you can imbue a set of tea leaves with a message for us, send them to us in a lovely care package, and wait until we make ourselves a cup of tea, and then attempt to scry the message in the dregs of the cup. I thought you drank coffee. Can they do it with coffee? Uh, no sacrifice is too great for our listeners. Uh, so tea it is. Uh, okay, well that's it for us. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. Fyrir sér alvaran Hann